Chapter Seven and Eight of Armageddon, Twenty Four Nineteen A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: Incredible Treason. After receiving this report and reassurances of support from the big bosses of the neighboring gangs, Hart determined to re-establish the Wyoming Valley community. A careful survey of the territory showed that it was only the northern sections and slopes that had been beamed by the first Han ship. The synthetic fabrics plant had been partially wiped out, though the lower levels underground had not been reached by the disray. The forest screen above it, however, had been annihilated, and it was determined to abandon it, after removing all usable machinery and evidences of the processes that might be of interest to the Han scientists should they return to the valley in the future. The ammunition plant and the rocket ship plant, which had just been about to start operation at the time of the raid, were intact, as were the other important plants. Han brought the Camboss up from the Susquanna works and laid out new camp locations, scattering them farther to the south, and avoiding ground which had been seared by the Han beams and the immediate locations of the Han wrecks. During this period a sharp check was kept upon Han messages, for the phone plant had been one of the first to be put in operation, and when it became evident that the Hans did not intend any immediate reprisals, the entire membership of the community was summoned back and normal life was resumed. Wilma and I had been married the day after the destruction of the ships, and spent this intervening period in a delightful honeymoon camping high in the mountains. On our return we had a camp of our own, of course. We were assigned to location 1017, and as might be expected, we had a great deal of banter over which one of us was camp boss. The title stood after my name on the big boss records and those of the big camp boss, of course, but Wilma airily held that this meant nothing at all, and generally succeeded in making me admit it whenever she chose. I found myself a full-fledged member of the gang now, for I had elected to search no farther for a permanent alliance, much as I would have liked to familiarize myself with this twenty-fifth century life in other sections of the country. The Wyomings had a high morale, and had prospered under the rule of Big Boss Hart for many years. But many of the gangs, I found, were badly organized, lacked strong hands in authority, and were rife with intrigue. On the whole, I thought I would be wise to stay with the group which had already proved its friendliness, and in which I seemed to have prospects of advancement. Under these modern social and economic conditions, the kind of individual freedom to which I had been accustomed in the twentieth century was impossible. I would have been as much of a nonentity in every phase of human relationship by attempting to avoid alliances as any man of the twentieth century would have been politically who aligned himself with no political party. This entire modern life, it appeared to me, judging from my ancient viewpoint, was organized along what I called political lines, and in this connection it amused me to notice how universal had become the use of the word boss. The leader, the person in charge or authority over anything, was a boss. There was as little formality in his relations with his followers as there was in the case of the twentieth-century political boss, and the same high respect paid him by his followers, as well as the same high consideration by him of their interests. 
he was just as much of an autocrat and just as much dependent upon the general popularity of his actions for the ability to maintain his autocracy the sub-boss who could not command the loyalty of his followers was as quickly deposed either by them or by his superiors as the ancient ward leader of the twentieth century who lost control of his votes as society was organized in the twentieth century i do not believe the system would have worked in anything but politics i tremble to think what would have happened had the attempt been made to handle the aef this way during the first world war instead of that rigid military discipline and complete assumption of the individual as a mere standardized cog in the machine but owing to the centuries of desperate suffering the people had endured at the hands of the hans there developed a spirit of self-sacrifice and consideration for the common good that made the scheme applicable and efficient in all forms of human cooperation. I have a little heresy about all this, however. My associates regard the thought with as much horror as many worthy people of the twentieth century felt in regard to any heretical suggestion that the original outline of government as laid down in the first constitution did not apply as well to the twentieth-century conditions as to those of the early nineteenth. In later years I felt that there was a certain softening of moral fiber among the people, since the Hans had been finally destroyed with all their works, and Americans have developed a new luxury economy. I have seen signs of the reawakening of greed, of selfishness. The eternal cycle seems to be at work i fear that slowly though surely private wealth is reappearing codes of inflexibility are developing they will be followed by corruption degradation and in the end some cataclysmic event will end this era and usher in a new one all this however is wandering afar from my story which concerns our early battles against the hans and not our more modern problems of self-control our victory over the seven Han ships had set the country ablaze. The secret had been carefully communicated to the other gangs, and the country was agog from one end to the other. There was feverish activity in the ammunition plants, and the hunting of stray Han ships became an enthusiastic sport. The results were disastrous to our hereditary enemies. From the Pacific coast came the report of a great trans-Pacific liner of 75,000 tons lift being brought to earth from a position of invisibility above the clouds. A dozen Sacramentos had caught the hazy outlines of its rep rays approaching them head-on in the twilight, like ghostly pillars reaching into the sky. They had fired rockets into it with ease, whereas they would have had difficulty in hitting it if it had been moving at right angles to their position they got one rep-ray. The other was not strong enough to hold it up. It floated to earth, nose down, and, since it was unarmed and unarmored, they had no difficulty in shooting it to pieces and massacring its crew and passengers. It seemed barbarous to me, but then I did not have centuries of bitter persecution in my blood. From the Jersey beaches we received news of the destruction of a New York Elana liner, the sandpipers, practically invisible in their sand-colored clothing, and half buried along the beaches, lay in wait for days, risking the play of its disbeams along the route, and finally registering four hits within a week. 
the hans discontinued their service along this route and as evidence that they were badly shaken by our success sent no raiders down the beaches it was a few weeks later that big boss hart sent for me tony he said there are two things i want to talk to you about one of them will become public property in a few days i think we aren't going to get any more Han ships by shooting up their repeller rays unless we use much larger rockets. They are wise to us now. They're putting armor of great thickness in the hulls of their ships below the rep ray machines. Near Bufflo this morning, a party of Eries shot one without success. The explosions staggered her, but did not penetrate. As near as we can gather from their reports, their laboratories have developed a new alloy of great tensile strength and elasticity which nevertheless lets the rep rays through like a sieve our reports indicate that the eries rockets bounced off harmlessly most of the party was wiped out as the disrays went into action on them this is going to mean real business for all of the gangs before long the big bosses have just held a national ultraphone council it was decided that America must organize on a national basis. The first move is to develop sectional organizations by zones. I have been made super boss of the Mid-Atlantic Zone. We're in for it now. The Hans are sure to launch reprisal expeditions. If we're to save the race, we must keep them away from our camps and plants. I'm thinking of developing a permanent field force along the lines of the regular armies of the 20th century you told me about. Its business will be twofold, to carry the warfare as much as possible to the Hans, and to serve as a decoy to keep their attention from our plants. I'm going to need your help in this. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is this. Amazing and impossible as it seems, there is a group, or perhaps an entire gang, somewhere among us, that is betraying us to the Hans. It may be the Bad Bloods, or it may be one of those gangs who live near one of the Han cities. You know, a hundred and fifteen or twenty years ago, there were certain of these people's ancestors who actually degraded themselves by mating with the Hans, sometimes even serving them as slaves in the days before they brought all their service machinery to perfection. There is such a gang called the Nagras up near Buffalo, and another in Mid-Jersey that men call the Pineys. But I hardly suspect the Pineys. There is little intelligence among them. They wouldn't have the information to give the Hans, nor would they be capable of imparting it. They're absolute savages. Just what evidence is there that anybody has been clearing information to the Hans? I asked. Well, he replied, first of all, there was that raid upon us. That first Han ship knew the location of our plants exactly. You remember, it floated directly into position above the valley and began a systematic beaming. Then the Hans quite obviously have learned that we are picking up their electrophone waves, for they've gone back to their old but extremely accurate system of directional control but we've been getting them for the past week by installing automatic rebroadcast units along the scar pass this is what the americans call those strips of country directly under the regular ship routes of the hans who as a matter of precaution frequently blasted them with their disc beams to prevent the growth of foliage which might give shelter to the americans 
but they've been beaming those paths so hard it looks as though they even had information of this strategy. And in addition, they've been using code. Finally, we've picked up three of their messages in which they discuss, with some nervousness, the existence of our mysterious ultraphone. But they still have no knowledge of the nature and control of ultronic activity, I asked. No, said the big boss thoughtfully. They don't seem to have a bit of information about it. Then it's quite clear, I ventured, that whoever is clearing us to them is doing it piecemeal. It sounds like a bit of occasional barter rather than an out-and-out alliance. They're holding back as much information as possible for future bartering, perhaps. Yes, Hart said, and it isn't information the Hans are giving in return, but some form of goods or privilege. The trick would be to locate the goods. I guess I'll have to make a personal trip around among the big bosses. End of Chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Han City This conversation set me thinking. All of the Han electrophone intercommunication had been an open record to the Americans for a good many years, and the Hans were just finding it out. For centuries they had not regarded us as any sort of a menace. Unquestionably it had never occurred to them to secrete their own records. Somewhere in New York, or Buffalo, or possibly in Lotan itself, the record of this traitorous transaction would be more or less openly filed. If we could only get at it. I wondered if a raid might not be possible. Bill Hearn and I talked it over with our Han Affairs boss and his experts. There ensued several days of research in which the Han records of the entire decade were scanned and analyzed. In the end they picked out a mass of detail and fitted it together into a very definite picture of the great central filing office of the Hans in New York, where the entire mass of official records were kept constantly available for instant projectoscoping in any of the city's offices, and of the system by which the information was filed. The attempt began to look feasible, though Hart instantly turned the idea down when I first presented it to him. It was unthinkable, he said. Sheer suicide. But in the end I persuaded him. I will need, I said, Blash, who is thoroughly familiar with the Han library system, Bert Gaunt, who for years has specialized on their military offices, Bill Barker, the ray specialist, and the best swooper pilot we have. Swoopers are one-man and two-man ships, developed by the Americans with skeleton backbones of Inertron during the war painted green for invisibility against the green forest below, and bellies of clear Ultron. That will be Mark Gibbons, said Hart. We only got three swoopers left, Tony, but I'll risk one of them if you and the others will voluntarily risk your existences. But mind, I won't urge or order one of you to go. I'll spread the word to every plant boss at once to give you anything and everything you need in the way of equipment. When I told Wilma of the plan, I expected her to raise violent and tearful objections, but she didn't. She was made of far sterner stuff than the women of the twentieth century. Not that she wouldn't weep as copiously or be just as whimsical on occasion, but she wouldn't weep for the same reasons. 
she just gave me an unfathomable look in which there seemed to be a bit of pride and asked eagerly for the details i confess i was somewhat disappointed that she could so courageously risk my loss even though i was amazed at her fortitude but later i was to learn how little i knew her then we were ready to slide off at dawn the next morning i had kissed wilma good-bye at our camp and after a final conference over our plans we boarded our craft and gently glided away over the treetops on a course which after crossing three routes of the han ships would take us out over the atlantic off the jersey coast whence we would come up on new york from the ocean twice we had to nose down and lie motionless on the ground near a route where han ships passed those were tense moments had the green back of our ship been observed we would have been disintegrated in a second but it wasn't once over the water however we climbed in a great spiral ten miles in diameter until our altimeter registered ten miles here gibbons shut off his rocket motor and we floated far above the level of the atlantic liners whose course was well to the north of us anyhow and waited for nightfall then gibbons turned from his control long enough to grin at me i have a surprise for you tony he said throwing back the lid of what i had supposed was a big supply case and with a sigh of relief wilma stepped out of the case if you go into zero a common expression of the day for being annihilated by the disintegrator ray you don't think i'm going to let you go alone do you tony I couldn't believe my ears last night when you spoke of going without me, until I realized that you are still five hundred years behind the times in lots of ways. Don't you know, dear heart, that you offered me the greatest insult a husband could give a wife? You didn't, of course. The others, it seemed, had all been in on the secret, and now they would have kidded me unmercifully, except that Wilma's eyes blazed dangerously. At nightfall we maneuvered to a position directly above the city. This took some time and calculation on the part of Bill Barker, who explained to me that he had to determine our point by ultronic bearings. The slightest resort to an electronic instrument, he feared, might be detected by our enemy's locators. In fact, we did not dare bring our swooper any lower than five miles for fear that its capacity might be reflected in their instruments. Finally, however, he succeeded in locating above the central tower of the city. "'If my calculations are as much as ten feet off,' he remarked with confidence, "'I'll eat the tower. Now the rest is up to you, Mart. See what you can do to hold her steady. No, here, watch this indicator, the red beam, not the green one. See, if you keep it exactly centered on the needle, you're okay. The width of the beam represents seventeen feet.' The tower platform is fifty feet square, so you've got a good margin to work on. For several moments we watched as Gibbons bent over his levers, constantly adjusting them with deft touches of his fingers. After a bit of wavering, the beam remained centered on the needle. Now, I said, let's drop. I opened the trap and looked down, but quickly shut it again, when I felt the air rushing out of the ship into the rarefied atmosphere in a torrent gibbons literally yelled a protest from his instrument board i forgot i mumbled silly of me of course we'll have to drop out of compartment 
the compartment to which i referred was similar to those in some of the twentieth-century submarines we all entered it there was barely room for us to stand shoulder to shoulder with some struggles we got into our special air helmets and adjusted the pressure at the signal gibbons exhausted the air in the compartment pumping it into the body of the ship and the little signal light flashed wilma threw open the hatch setting the ultron wire reel i climbed through and began to slide down gently we all had our belts on of course adjusted to a weight balance of but a few ounces and the five-mile reel of ultron wire that was to be our guide was of gossamer fineness though anyway i believe it would have lifted the full weight of the five of us so strong and tough was this invisible metal as an extra precaution since the wire was of the purest metal and therefore totally invisible even in daylight we all had our belts hooked on small rings that slid down the wire i went down with the end of the wire wilma followed a few feet above me then barker gaunt and blash gibbons of course stayed behind to hold the ship in position and control the paying out of the line we all had our ultraphones in place inside our air helmets and so could converse with one another and with gibbons but at wilma's suggestion although we would have liked to let the big boss listen in we kept them adjusted to short-range work for fear that those who had been clearing with the hans and against whom we were on a raid for evidence might pick up our conversation we had no fear that the hans would hear us in fact we had the added advantage that even after we landed we could converse freely without danger of their hearing our voices through our air helmets for a while i could see nothing below but utter darkness then i realized from the feel of the air as much as from anything that we were sinking through a cloud layer we passed through two more cloud layers before anything was visible to us then there came under my gaze about two miles below one of the most beautiful sights i have ever seen the soft yet brilliant radiance of the great han city of new york every foot of its structural members seemed to glow with a wonderful incandescence tower piled up on tower and all built on the vast base mass of the city which so i had been told sheared upward from the surface of the rivers to a height of seven hundred twenty-eight levels the city i noticed with some surprise did not cover anything like the same area as the new york of the twentieth century it occupied as a matter of fact only the lower half of manhattan island with one section straddling the east river and spreading out sufficiently over what once had been brooklyn to provide berths for the great liners and other aircraft straight beneath my feet was a tiny dark patch it seemed the only spot in the entire city that was not aflame with radiance this was the central tower in the top floors of which were housed the vast library of record files and the main projectoscope plant you can shoot the wire now i ultraphoned gibbons and let go the little weighted knob it dropped like a plummet and we followed with considerable speed but breaking our descent with gloved hands sufficiently to see whether the knob on which a faint light glowed as a signal for ourselves might be observed by any han guard or night prowler apparently it was not and we again shot down with accelerated speed 
we landed on the roof of the tower without any mishap and fortunately for our plan in darkness since there was nothing above it on which it would have been worth while to shed illumination or from which there was any need to observe it the hans had neglected to light the tower roof or indeed to occupy it at all this was the reason we had selected it as our landing place as soon as gibbons had our word he extinguished the knob light and the knob as well as the wire became totally invisible at our ultraphoned word he would light it again no gun play now i warned swords only and then only if absolutely necessary closely bunched and treading as lightly as only inert tron belted people could we made our way cautiously through a door and down an inclined plane to the floor below where gaunt and blash assured us the military offices were located twice barker cautioned us to stop as we were about to pass in front of mirror-like windows in the passage wall and flattening ourselves to the floor we crawled past them projectoscopes he said probably on automatic record only at this time of night still we don't want to leave any records for them to study after we're gone were you ever here before i asked no he replied but i haven't been studying their electrophone communications for seven years without being able to recognize those machines when i run across them end of chapter eight